I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is New York Times bestselling author, Jonathan Mooney. Normal Sucks, How to Live, Learn, and Thrive Outside the Lines is his new book. Diagnosed with dyslexia and ADHD as a kid, Jonathan didn't learn to read until he was 12. He often heard that he was lazy and stupid and would probably end up homeless or in jail. Now, he's a Brown University Ivy League grad, a renowned disabilities rights advocate, and in-demand speaker. Uh, Jonathan meditates on his life and shares the realization that saved it. He wasn't the problem. The educational system and society's concept of normal were. His work has been featured in the New York Times, LA Times, USA Today, NPR, and many more media outlets. Um, He continues to speak across the nation about neurological and physical diversity, and his other books include The Short Bus and Learning Outside the Lines. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thank you so much for having me this morning. Okay, well, as I said before we started the show, I've lost my voice. So I have to say I'm not so sure normal does suck, because if I had my voice, that would be normal. But anyway, uh, um, great book. Okay, you, I mean, you've, let's start with, I mean, you've gotten so many praises for this book, even um, is in, since it just came out. Um, what You've covered the whole history of how the idea of normal evolved. I think we should start with that, because what is normal? Yeah, good question. Uh, that was the question that was the impetus for, for the project, and uh, the question was deeply personal to me because I was, uh, as a kid, because of my learning and attentional differences, considered not normal. So to have a not normal, uh, you, m- you must have a normal. <laughs> so I went on a, a mission, a quest, to, to figure out what that uh, normal uh, person, normal brain uh, was. And uh, not to spoil the book, but the uh, uh, reality is that uh, normal is a social construct. It's not a fact in the world. Uh, it emerged within a particular social uh, context um, in the mid-1800s, 1850s, 1860s, uh, during uh, industrialization, uh, when there was a cultural imperative to make people uh, all the same, uh, opposed to celebrate what makes people different. Uh, that, in and of itself, is a, is a pretty, um, uh, for me at least, uh, eye-opening and, and revolutionary uh, insight, because normal is something that sort of masquerades uh, as an ever-present universal truth, um, something that's always been and, and always uh, will, uh, and the fact that it is something that is specifically historic, uh, historically contingent uh, and is um, uh, grounded within a particular historical context uh, around a particular economic mode of production, etc., uh, that gives me hope. It gives me hope that uh, normal doesn't always have to be what we think it has been in the past, and we can recreate it, we can reimagine it, and we can uh, broaden it. So the definition of normal is constantly changing for all those reasons that you just mentioned. I mean, we're talking about the 1800s when it became, I guess, clear within the, in the United States anyway, and I guess in Europe, what normal is. And we're not, we're talking about normal physical and also emotional and cognitive. It includes all of those, um, what we consider uh, normal, the definition of normal. 
What's interesting is that in, in, the, in the, the history of, of folks trying to uh, find and codify what is normal, um, more often than not, they defined normal by what it wasn't, uh, and they defined it by categorizing a whole group of people uh, as abnormal. So those two concepts go hand in hand. Uh, and normal is built on the backs of humans who have been called not normal. Uh, and the people who have been called not normal uh, over time are people with atypical brains and bodies, um, folks that we historically and traditionally think of as people with disabilities, um, uh, people with atypical uh, uh, sexual and gender identity. Uh, we forget that um, uh, folks with, with uh, atypical sexuality and gender identity were pathologized uh, as early as the mid-1960s. It was in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual as a disease or disorder. Uh, and then also folks with uh, uh, different race and class backgrounds. All of those groups of people were, were called not normal to prop up this idea that what was normal or typical, because that's the thing we have to remember, normal has always tried to posit that it is what is typical, what is uh, right in the world. And uh, normal has been posited as the white, straight, uh, uh, able-bodied, upper-middle-class nuclear family with 2.5 kids. Now, the 2.5 part really gives you insight into what a fiction it is, because I've never met 0.5 child in my life. That's a statistical abstraction, and that gives us insight into how normal is really a worshiping of the statistical average, and the statistical average does not exist in the world. But when we act like it does, and when we try to make it exist in the world and embed it in our institutions, it causes a lot of harm and pain for the people who are left out. Yeah, and we, but why are we, we talk about or we pride ourselves, it seems, or maybe it's just in the media, that we we embrace diversity. We embrace diversity. Uh, we as a country, let's take the United States. And what you're saying is we really don't do that. That's that's just kind of a myth. That's something that we talk about, but we don't embrace. And, and what would it mean to embrace diversity? I think you're, you're exactly right. We have uh, the rhetoric of diversity and difference down. Um, we talk a lot about it, but the practice of it is, is far um, disconnected from the rhetoric of it. You know, I spent a lot of time in schools, you know, um, talking to young folks, talking to teachers, it's something I'm passionate about. And, uh, you know, we tell kids in kindergarten that we're all special snowflakes, you know. <laughs> we're all different. We're all special snowflakes. Uh, and then the bell rings, and, and we tell uh, the special snowflakes to sit their ass down and take the state standardized test, right? You know, so the, the gap between rhetoric and reality is, is gaping. Uh, and we have a long way to go to close that gap. And it's uh, a big gap broadly in our rhetoric of diversity and difference. But then more specifically, even in our cultural moment, which I am inspired by, where we're talking more about equity and inclusion, 
and talking about what would that mean from a policy perspective, whether that be uh, the policy idea of, of reparations for folks who are historically um, enslaved, whether that means uh, what's happening at the Supreme Court yesterday and today where they're, we're debating whether LGBTQ folks can be fired uh, because of their sexual uh, orientation and gender identity. That's happening right now at the Supreme Court. While we're having all those really vibrant conversations around equity and inclusion, I've noted a real irony. And the irony is often the people left out of that conversation, excluded from that conversation, are people with atypical brains and bodies. You know, let me give you an example of that. I spend a lot of time talking to people at um, sort of corporate diversity spaces, you know, trying to build a more inclusive and equitable uh, private sector ecosystem. And many corporations have inspiring mission statements that they don't necessarily act on around diversity, but those mission statements are all about inclusion when it comes to race, class, gender, sexual orientation. But guess what's left out of that? Disability status. Disability status is still considered a a compliance issue, not a diversity issue. And so I advocate for us elevating in this moment of inclusion and and equity the folks who have been left out, the folks who were called not normal first. The people called not normal first were folks with atypical brains and bodies. They were pathologized, and then they were targeted for elimination in the American eugenics uh, movement, uh, and, and not just the American eugenics movement, the international eugenics movement. So let's uh, commit ourselves to not just talking about how we're all different. Let's include folks with different brains and bodies in that conversation. And then let's start to really think deeply about what does it mean from a policy uh, and educational systemic perspective to make sure we have environments that don't just work for some people, but work for all people. Lynn, your your example, obviously the one that you talk about in the book, uh, your own experience, you kind of touched on that a little bit in the beginning of the interview. Um, You were one of those people, right? ADHD. Um, You were, I I don't know if I said this in the beginning, but you didn't learn to read until you were 12 years old. What was that like for you and how did you extricate yourself? I don't know if extricate is the right word, but how were you able to... Um, I guess, go, go. you know, you were filled with, as you describe it anyway, with shame and, and, you know, you're in the dumb reading group and we all know if we were in the dumb reading group, even if they make up these stories about birds and bees, yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. you're in the blue group or the red group. We know what the dumb group is and you were in the yeah. dumb group and you weren't dumb. So talk about your own experience. Yeah, you're right to note that my, uh, quest to understand and then subsequently uh, deconstruct and reject the notion of, of, of a normal comes directly from my experience of being called not normal. Uh, I struggled in school because of learning and attentional differences. I was the you know round peg that didn't fit the, the square hole. I spent a lot of the day chilling out with the janitor in the hallway, grew up on a first-name basis, was surely the receptionist in the principal's office, uh, spent a lot of the day hiding in the bathroom to escape reading out loud with tears streaming down my face. And as you rightfully noted, I spent a lot of day in the, in the dumb reading group, um, tried to be disguised in all sorts of different rhetorical euph- euphemisms, but nonetheless, everybody <laughs> knew uh, which one was the dumb group. And that uh, devastated my sense of self. Uh, that uh, uh, led me to believe that I was not different, but deficient. 
that I was the stupid, crazy, lazy kid. And that culminated in me having a, a plan for uh, suicide when I was 12 years old. Uh, I actually uh, wrote about that not only in the book, but also in today's New York Times. Um, I have an opinion piece about the uh, exponential um, crisis of of self-harm and uh, well-being for people with atypical brains and bodies because the message that people get when they were uh, extricated from uh, and culled from the herd of normality is that they are deficient and defective human beings. And you're right that my journey was one of healing from that message. Uh, And that journey of healing uh, for me and and what I hope for others, because that's been my life work as an activist and a writer and a speaker, that journey of healing is contingent, first of all, on rejecting this dichotomy between the normal and not, and challenging the pathologizing of the not normal with atypical brains and bodies. You know, I think we uh, lose sight as a broader culture uh, of the way that people who differ from the norm when it comes to embodiment are relentlessly called sick, deficient, defective. And that has tremendous damage to their sense of self. So we replace that pathology model with a diversity model and understand that different isn't deficient. And then we have to uh, really, uh, as individuals, we have to reject the deficit orientation when it comes to ourselves. You know, I heard all the time in school what I couldn't do. I didn't hear a lot about what I could do and my strengths and talents and gifts and value to the world. And we have to celebrate the value that different brains and bodies bring to the world. That value is pragmatic, meaning there's a direct correlation and causation between different learning and attentional uh, and, and neurological states of being and things that we need in the world. You know, we know people with Uh, learning differences are more entrepreneurial than the general population. We know people with attentional differences are better problem solvers than the general population. We know that folks with with atypical bodies who have experienced uh, physical challenges are often more resilient and have more grit and perseverance than the general population. We need all of those things. So that means that these things called deficiencies are differences not deficiencies, they're valuable to the world as a form of human diversity. And we as individuals who have been called not normal have to wake up every day and own our value and celebrate our value. And then we have to advocate for a world that celebrates it as well. Yeah, and I think you've uh, obviously that has to be done. And as, as you describe in the book, your mother, one of your teachers, um, you have to believe in your uh, you know neuro diverse kids, for instance, and I was thinking as you were talking, I don't know if you've seen the play, the new version of Oklahoma. Uh, in, I, I, I haven't seen it, but I, but I, I, I know the phenomenal uh, commitment that the producers of that play and that wonderful actress uh, have made to a broader um, uh, cultural narrative around ability and, and inspired by it. Exactly. Well, she, the lead, is in a wheelchair and she's the lead female, you know, the, the female lead. Uh, she just, yeah, she just, she describes herself, yes, and as uh, well, you know, how did she get? I think there was an article about her anyway, and she describes herself as as it, it sounds like just what you're talking about. She was in a car accident before she was five years old. She became paralyzed from the waist down, and her parents did not focus on her 
that she couldn't walk, but they focused, she had a little talent for singing in her voice. And that's what they focused on. And uh, that began her acting career at, you know, at age six or seven or eight, um, because they did just that, focus on, focus on the strengths and her talents. Um, not all of us are going to get to Broadway, but still. Um, it has been a great conversation. You didn't get to hear my, oh, I'm talking about Aldoani, the, you know, the lead in Oklahoma. But anyway, she sort of personifies what we've been talking about during these, the past you know, half hour. Um, great book. Uh, it's really inspiring. You're inspiring. So is the book. Um, and I guess, and Jonathan Mooney, and the title of his book is Normal Sucks. How to Live, Learn, and Thrive Outside the Lines. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, and I hope your voice gets better. It will. <laughs> it will. Okay, thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 